0: This is an ABC Podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to the Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this programme. Well, Lead Ali is my name, Scott Stevens, is my co-host. How are you, Scott? I'm very well, Waleed. Hey, before we get into the show, mm.
2: there's
1: so many things I actually want to talk to you about, but mm. I'm just going to pick one. Did you happen to clock Jeff Bezos's speech at COP26?
2: Yes, I saw it very briefly.
1: And then just huffed and walked away? Yes, I did. Yes. What is it,
2: $2.7 billion? Uh, something like that, yeah. yeah.
1: Is it, I think his funders donated $10 billion over the course of something. Anyway, mm. what I found interesting was the way he worded his reflections looking back at earth from up there the atmosphere seems so thin the world is so finite and so fragile now in this critical year and what we all know is the decisive decade we must all stand together to protect the world he said he he was told that it changes you forever looking back at the earth from space but he wasn't prepared for just how profound and deep that change would be scott it's mm. happening it's the overview effect scott this is what we discussed <laughs> is it really? in that show
2: Yes, yes, it is precisely what we discussed in the show. I do have, I do linger with the fear that it is possibly a superficial response. Uh, the words blood money do come to mind when it comes to the sheer amount of wealth that he has amassed uh, with the systematic deprivation of fundamental workers' entitlements. You're arguing uh, a different
1: especially. point now.
2: I am arguing a different point, but I think the attempt to redeem his money after the fact – um, I don't know. There is there, there is something of a moral taint about that that I believe that sticks. But look, yeah, there yeah. are a great many people – there are a great many people who said in response to both the famous Earthrise image mm. and in response to the experience of going to space that there is something about the experience that it fills them with a sense of humility, with the idea of the fragility rather than just the mere givenness of the planet. Mm-hmm. All of these things I think are indisputable. I, I, I do linger with the conviction, however – that those are not sufficient conditions to create genuine moral transformation. And more than that, more than that, that does sound to me a bit like a morally tinged or tainted promotion for his ongoing thoroughly privatized space venture. So you may be right. It may also be tainted. Let's hope it's the former.
1: It just sounds like you're trying a bit hard to me there. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting that, that, you know, this thing is being fulfilled. We'll see how genuinely. But there's Are you things.
2: taking this as objective proof of your correctness? No, 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 no. A little disagreement no, no. we had in a show earlier this night. No, 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 no. Nothing quite no? so
1: grand, but I just thought I'd bring it okay. to your attention because I, th- I just always thought there was the
2: potential. That's all. It is, it is an <laughs> anecdotal affirmation of your possible correctness. <laughs> <laughs> is that well, better?
1: Even that's putting it a bit high, but sure.
2: <laughs> all, right. all
1: right. You've exhausted my insights. Do you want to do the show?
2: Well, yes, um, we've, we've actually done a lot of talking about sport this year. We've done a few shows over the course of the last seven years. Uh, this year, I think we've done three or four on issues related to or circulating around or surrounding or running through uh, the performance of elite sport. I mean, one of the ones that I really enjoyed was whether the absence of fans and stands really does take away something substantial, something essential from the game. This week, we're doing something far graver, I think. In fact, I I suspect that with this topic, we're going just about as deep and dark as modern competitive sports can go. We're we're talking about the phenomenon of concussion or of the infliction of – let me get this exactly right. Just call it CTE. It's much easier. Of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I always think of that because Nietzsche always used to talk about acephalic knowledge, a form of knowledge that belongs to the body. I should have the term cephalic on the tip of my tongue most Mm. of the time. So encephalopathy. In other words, concussive repeated brain injury, which then leads to neurogenerative uh, conditions. Uh, Well, which a great deal of scientific research suggests either contributes to, precipitates, leads directly to, Uh, neurodegenerative conditions later on in life. This particular issue for me raises an awful lot of questions, Waleed. Uh, I think some questions uh, pique you a little bit more. Some questions really do exercise my conscience. It does strike me that one of the things that sport does, and this is something that you've probably convinced me of repeatedly, or gradually over the course of the last few years that there is something about the drama, about the fiction of sport, about the necessary fictions of sport, whether it be the nature of the tribal identities, the relationship between sport or teams in, in a particular place, the ways in which communities of fans can be built up meaningfully, totally disconnected from a particular place, or even a connection to a particular place, and yet nonetheless have a degree of meaningfulness. I think all of that's probably right. But there is something about the virtuosity. There's something about the spectacle. There's something, you might even want to call it, something about the the full-color orgy of sport. I mean, we are, after all, talking about this during Melbourne Cup Week, which is, I mean, it is the Bacchanalian orgy of... High class de- de- of high class decadence and a kind of low class thirst for cruelty. I just find it just the most obscene spectacle. When we're talking about sort I of just, spectacles, I, just, I, mean, folk, I mean
1: that that is hugely no, overblown. No, just
2: a low class. No. What did you call it? a low class thirst for? cruelty. No, it's covered not. over with a form of high class decadence. It's no, just it it's it, not it a is thirst
1: for cruelty at all. No, it, it is. I, I, anyway, it, no, if anyway. you'd have a stronger argument if you called it an indifference. But a thirst for cruelty?
2: Mm. Come on. Mm. You
1: you've reached for
2: something rhetorical rather than substantive there. No, nope. I can prosecute that. <laughs>
1: okay.
2: um, but anyway, there is something about the full-color spectacle of sport. And there's also something, I think, about the titanic size of the bodies, the, about the virtuosity of the performances. All of that is meant to get us in a position, I think, of kind of being transfixed by the spectacle itself. And I think one of the things that sport often does is it lures us into a condition of forgetting, of forgetting of maybe some of the ancillary costs. Forgetting of some of the necessary costs, forgetting some of the off-field costs, forgetting the ongoing effects of some of the on-field injuries and penalties. And so I think one of the things that sport can often do is to lure us into a condition of unthinking or of kind of deliberate or willful forgetting. It does strike me, though, that every once in a while something big happens that forces us to come to grips with the casualties that are often inflicted on bodies, whether they be horse bodies or whether, particularly in this conversation, human bodies in the course of sport. Uh, I'm sure you would have seen, Willie, but uh, just last week, A class action suit was lodged by 10 former uh, English, Welsh, Scottish international rugby players uh, against the Rugby Football League, uh, alleging, let me just quote from their suit, alleging that the governing body, quote, failed in their duty to take reasonable care for their safety by establishing and implementing rules in respect of the assessment, diagnosis, and treatment of actual or suspected concussive and subconcussive injuries. Uh, All of these players are under the age of 60. All of them are exhibiting symptoms associated with brain injuries, and there are another 50 players. So this is a test case, if you like, and there are another 50 players waiting in the wings to see the results. I should say that our colleague Damien Carrick on the law report has done a really excellent, excellent legal treatment of this case. But then we have, you know, the coroner's report from the case of Richmond player Shane Tuck, who took his own life last year at the age of 38. Uh, After his death, he was diagnosed with CTE. We've also got, and this, you might not have seen this, Walid. I was horrified by it. In 2017, uh, the quarterback of the Houston Texans, uh, an NFL team in the United States, Tom Savage, was tackled. It was one of those really sickening, sickening tackles. His head hit and bounced off the ground. The quarterback, Tom Savage, then rolled over onto his side, his arms involuntarily stiff out in front of him, his hands shaking. Uh, he looked it looked like he was experiencing a seizure. We have these periodic moments where an injury happens or a class action suit is brought or something takes place to arrest our attention and to ask I think two related questions: Are these injuries not just incidental injuries, not just that say a seven foot three basketball player is unable to walk well later in life because of the damage done to their knees, or a six foot ten basketball player, to take my own favorite example, is left with debilitating back pain and has to retire early because someone of that size is not meant to move that much on that hard a floor with that poor support in his feet, uh, and therefore you know has to sort of live with those consequences for the rest of his life. So not incidental injuries. But injuries that dramatically curtail the life of the former elite athlete. Injuries which can devastate families, which can lead to not just depression, mood change, behavioral change, but also in many cases to suicide. Is the injury, is the enjoyment of the sport worth the cost that it inflicts on the player? And I think for me, there's another question that goes along with that. And this is the question that interests me most. I'm not sure if it interests you or as much as the or earlier question. What about the fans? If, if I'm right that there's something about the spectacle of sport that draws us into a condition of forgetting, of unthinking about the ongoing penalties. Can fans in good conscience enjoy sport that reek, as far as we can tell, devastating consequences on the bodies of these athletes. Is this something that we can simply put aside and give ourselves over to the process of enjoyment? Or is there, is there a deeper responsibility on the part of fans? I'll just confess to you, Walid Growing up in the United States, I, I enjoyed very, very much watching NFL. Uh, as soon as it dawned on me, something of the effects that playing this was having on the lives of players. I've not been able to watch a single minute again. The whole thing just seems to me dirty and immoral and uh, soaked in essentially blood money. Um, so so for me, the issue of conscience is is determinative. It's seismic. I just can't. I just can't get over it. I know a great many people who are in the same position. I wonder how it is for AFL and for NRL fans. Um, and I wonder how it is for players looking back on their experience looking back on maybe their own prospect of injury or their own experience of, of the possibility of lifelong injury. Anyway, that's me. What do you think?
1: Do you think the players currently playing in the NFL feel
2: the way you do? No, I don't. I don't. One of the things that I am reminded of all the time, though, and I watch more. Look, for, for me, I can't watch contact sports I can't watch sports I understand. I'm talking about the players who play it, though. Um, It it does strike me, and I'm constantly reminded of this, that even though these players are hulking and huge and seem gigantic and mature, many of them are very, very, very young and in no position to evaluate the consequences for the rest of their lives. Many of them, uh, well over half of the players in the NFL, for instance, come from severely impoverished areas of the United States. Well over 70% of the current players in the NFL and well over 80% of the players in the NBA uh, are African American, for whom many, many, many life prospects are dramatically limited. And the prospect of remuneration and lifestyle and fame is rightly, I'm not, I'm not condemning this, is rightly irresistible. Um, and yet there's something about having to make that trade, especially for NFL players, having to make that trade in order to secure that money because so few other prospects are available to them. There's something about that that really, really does concern me.
1: They're not people being forced down into a coal mine, though. Like, I, I, th- I think you're talking about them as though they lack really any meaningful agency. And I'm just not sure that's right. Okay.
2: Um, I wouldn't deny them agency, especially especially in a time like this when players possibly have more agency than ever before. But right. so then you really you're left think... with
1: it, then you're left with an argument that they don't know what they're doing, which might be true. I think it's it's a complicated argument though, because I suspect that's true of most of us in most situations. Like we yeah. we, we are always taking on risks we don't understand. But let me let me frame all this by saying. Broadly speaking, I agree with you. But I I feel that I need to press on what you're saying. Mm, Please. Because I think it's easy, even if we arrive at the same end point about the moral complications of particularly contact sport, I think it's important to go on the journey to get there properly. Mm, I agree. And I think it's too easy to gloss over this in a very frictionless way, especially people who don't particularly like sport. I think it's very easy for them to do that. I'm not putting you in that category because you've spoken about your relationship with various sports, particularly American sports. But I think it's very easy to go, well, look, people get concussions and it results in this horrible condition at the end of their life um, and it terminates lives early and therefore it is just, that's the end of the conversation. But I find the most arresting contribution on this, weirdly, that I heard in the past year came from James Graham, who is a retired now a rugby league player, champion rugby league player from England, who had a career in England and then came to the NRL and was a champion player in the NRL. And he went on a, a rugby league talk show Earlier in the year, I'm trying to think, it would have been about March, I think. And he said, look, this is a talking about concussion, which was a very big issue in rugby league this year, especially this year. Mm, and he said, it's, it's a very, very complex issue. This is a quote. And I had to do some really deep thinking about what I wanted to do, he means, during his career there and what the consequences were and what are the consequences for me. And then this is what he considered, quote, Okay, I'm hanging up the boots for concussion, for future brain diseases. But where was the purpose going to be filled in my life? I personally felt I needed a cause. What's the meaning of life? Maybe for me, the meaning of life was finding something worth dying for. I went for it. I'm not going to betray my former self because I was who I was. Rugby was the be-all and potential end-all of my life. I have to probably live with that forever. As I went on the journey, I asked the doctor some questions about the risks and asked myself some questions. Was I going to privilege the present over the future? I decided that I was going to pri- privilege the present over the future. I was willing to take on those risks. Now, I think it's easy to sort of say, well, this is just a rugby league buffhead," But he's actually not. He's, he's actually a very thoughtful, intelligent person who seems to have made a committed and principled decision that says... I'm taking on the risk of a potentially horrible end. It may well be I don't fully understand that end. But what I'm prizing over that is something that gives my life meaning. And I would rather live a short, meaningful life than a long, safe one that's devoid of meaning. Now, we can have our arguments about whether or not this is an appropriate way of making meaning. We can try to deconstruct that judgment on what it is that gives a life meaning in the way that you've kind of gestured towards, you know, about are these decisions that athletes in this position make real? Do they really have these choices? What sort of backgrounds do they come? We can do that. But it always seems to me that we are far more willing to deconstruct other people's choices and judgments on these things than we are our own. Hmm, Of course. And I wonder whether or not the overwhelming focus, which I think is a correct focus, by the way, of sporting bodies on how to minimize the risks of concussion. In fact, I think it's an inevitable and and a compulsory focus that they have on that at this moment. But I think that eventually you will run into the, the situation where contact sport, and even sports that are not very high contact, like soccer, are unplayable without this risk. Mm, that's right. That you would I have to exactly transform right. them so dramatically. I mean, we're already seeing in the UK that professional footballers are now subject to guidelines that mean that they barely do any heading practice during the week. It's left entirely for the game. There are people who talk seriously in the UK about the possibility of football taking place without any heading happening, which at that point is a completely different game, it says to me. So... If you run into the point where you decide that these sports are unplayable without this risk, it seems that you've got to the end of the harm minimization strategy and you then run headlong into the question of meaning. And that is, are some risks worth the meaning that it gives people's lives? And here I'm thinking more of the athletes than I am of the fans Mm -hmm. because the fans don't have to make that sacrifice. The athletes do. And yes, there are people who, in hindsight, regret those decisions or weren't fully aware of the risks and therefore have legitimate reasons to be angry about and want to sue sporting organisations or clubs or whatever. We're going to see a lot of this. Yes, we are. But what do you do with this residual, and it seems to me irreducible question of meaning in the life of people? And that's why Mm -hmm. I asked that question to you do the players feel, that are playing in the NFL feel the same way about it as you do? Yeah. Especially in a society, well, by the way, that allows people to do all kinds of harm, harmful things to themselves. You can hmm. walk down to a service station and get a packet of cigarettes right now. No one okay, will stop yes. you doing
2: that, right? that. That's right. But and, and look, I will admit fully, full-throatedly, that I simplified things overly much in my first attempt to set up the topic that was deliberate, it was to provoke precisely this kind of discussion.
1: And I will admit that my response also overlooks some okay. things that I will then go on and argue. But but I think it's worth giving it that full-throated expression in response, because it I is, think we need it, to tease out the contours of this.
2: It is. But let me just, before we get to our guest, I'm so excited to have the guest for this discussion. I'll explain why in a second. But let me just respond to two very, very quick points. Um, I think the question of meaning is an interesting one, but I don't think it's quite the zero-sum game that you may well be making it out to be. For instance, there are sports uh, for which severe, potentially life-altering, potentially head trauma-inducing contact is an essential part of the game. For instance, you cannot have NFL or AFL or NRL without severe forms of contact. Um, you You could put it this way that head injuries are not a bug. They are a feature. This is precisely what these games are meant to inflict, invoke. Um, I would say that one of the most shocking experiences of my life upon three weeks of first arriving in this country in 1991 was being taken to my first rugby league game. And the people who were with me saying, you know, you're used to sort of pads and helmets. You wait to see how these players flatten one another. I mean, I, I saw three players who were knocked unconscious during that one game. It was, it was horrible. Yeah, and It's fact- not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. Well, it's a collision sport. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, but then there are sports for whom those kinds of injuries are, you could put it this way, are extrinsic to the way in which. So, so you would say, for instance, that a knee to the temple of a soccer player or a football player. Let me say soccer to try to differentiate. Um, you, you could say that that is an accident. It's unfortunate. It could be a, a catastrophic accident for that player's ongoing life. But that's not a necessary move in the game. That's not uh, part I, I of see, the I rules. see the
1: distinction you're trying to draw, but I don't think it applies, actually. Not, okay, certainly well, not here because the part of the problem with CTE, and we're learning this more and more, is it's not the big hits. It's the repeti- it's repeated the repeat. that's right. Subconcussive course. hits, such as heading a soccer ball. Right, You look okay. at the, the level of uh, early-onset dementia, That maybe that's too strong. Let's just say dementia and Alzheimer's, that has inflicted the team that won the 1966 World Cup for England. Yeah. We're up to about half the team, maybe even more now. Yeah. So I, I actually think, even though I appreciate the distinction you're trying to draw, and it may in theory be meaningful, I think we're going to find in practice it's less and less meaningful. We're already... Okay. The, the doctor who you know, first rang the alarm bell on the CTE thing out of the mm. United States, has basically called for all contact sport to be abandoned for anyone under 18. That, yes. That's the world he's living in, right? Yeah. Once you do that, you effectively get rid of those sports.
2: Yes, that's precisely right. Okay. And so, so, so what I'm saying is there are forms of sporting meaning making that don't necessarily involve the risk of that particular kind of trauma. But they're less interesting, right, in this particular case. Oh, well, they may be less interesting. But the other thing, just very, very briefly, you do realize that in your invocation of meaning making, in other words, trading off the future in the interest of the present, you also are invoking precisely the parable at the heart of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, which was making a deal with Mephistopheles of immense wealth, fame, scientific discovery, knowledge in the meantime, but one sells one's soul later on. Now, it's not just the athlete and the sport that are doing the meaning making here. There are enormous interests that are at play. There are huge forms of money generation, and there are hordes and hordes and hordes of fans who precisely want this. And it seems to me that it's not just the finding of meaning in the play of a particular game that's 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 considerative of player autonomy. It's also those Folds of interest that envelop, and I think in many cases might even exploit, uh, and that's certainly been the charge of a number of these players that exploit the players themselves, reducing them, yes, to immense talent but also ultimately to commodities that can be disposed of when their usefulness is no longer there. So I do think that the the kind of purity of, I love the sport, I'm willing to sacrifice my body to it now. Again, that's probably not quite filling out the full picture. And that's why I would really like to include in this, what are the obligations of the fans who watch, who know something about effect that this is having on players what are their obligations for whether they can go on watching this or not
1: if you just joined us you are listening to the minefield you can listen to the show on rn which you might be doing right now you can also catch the podcast anytime you like on the abc listen app or by following the minefield on your podcast platform of choice
2: Our guest has, uh, well, co-authored the book on exactly this topic. Jessica Luther is an investigative journalist. She's an author and broadcaster based in Austin, Texas. She's co-author with Kavitha Davidson of the book Loving Sport When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan, which makes, Jessica, you pretty much the perfect guest to join us on the show. Thanks for being with us.
0: I'm so happy to be here. So you've
2: heard, Walid and I, maybe quite possibly – talk at cross purposes. <laughs> we have slightly different interests and certainly different convictions. I'm not actually even going to put a question to you. Where Where do you think this conversation ought to go?
0: I think it's so complicated and I think that's one of the hardest things about it. Um, I'm definitely with Walid on thinking about these players as having agency and making choices. And in the book, Kavitha and I, right, about the fact that they're also laborers, that they're making choices about their job, about their financial stability, about their family, uh, that these are complicated choices that they're making. At the same time, as you said, a lot of the time they're making these choices when they're young and they're sort of stuck in a singular path, as you will, especially in the United States when we talk about uh, American football. And, you know, the NFL hid uh, data they they worked against science to make sure that players didn't know uh how bad this could be and so there are sort of nefarious things going on behind the scenes that that matter and and the idea of like what do people know and how are they making their decisions and then i will just say that the whole time that you you all were talking the thing that kept coming up for me is that we are talking about the professional level and Mm -hmm. There are only so many people in this world who actually uh, participate on that level and are making choices in the, in these ways about meaning and about, you know, uh, financial stability and all these sorts of things. Uh, and there are millions of children and youth around this world who participate in these sports uh, at a time when it's much harder to argue that they have agency and knowledge of the choices that they're making that absolutely have an impact on their bodies in their brains as they get older. Uh, and I think that's the part, that is really this this space in which I get stuck. And I sort of want to agree with that doctor about no one under 18, because it is so scary to think about how people are making choices at such a young age. And so it is just such a wide ranging topic. And I don't even know where to put fans in all of this.
1: <laughs> Do you know what, as I think about this, I kind of, hmm, yeah, I'm I'm really, t- I think we're three torn people. Maybe Scott isn't, mm. uh, maybe it's just the two of us. But, um, but I feel, at, at once I feel that this is a really important, urgent topic. It might be the most important topic in sport. Maybe even the history of sport, who knows. But at the same time, it seems an odd focus. I mean, if you were genuinely worried about, self-destructive decisions that people make that they come to regret later in life and that they make when they're young, even if they're still adults, but they're young adults, that they come to regret. We would be devoting far more energy to something like alcohol consumption, right? Hmm. It ruins far more lives, But but we don't. We well, that's see, not
0: really in the frame of sports, right? Like, no, no, no. But, but what I mean this is. Direction. Sure, but right. I'm just
1: saying, as a society, we don't. And I think the reason we don't, and this is easy for me to say as someone who doesn't drink, but I think the reason that we don't is a life without it is just too difficult for too many to contemplate. That is, we make what seems to be an almost ab initio judgment that whatever the costs, it's worth it. In some kind of way, why, why is it that when we shift our focus to something like sport, it, it just the response is so dramatically different? Is it that we're caught by surprise by the costs of it, that it was something that we assumed was benign or even healthy, and then it turns out it wasn't? Is it so? Is it the surprise element that's there? Is it some kind of prejudice or even obsession with? sport that makes us reckon with it in a different way. I don't know what it is. I just feel like whenever we end up talking about this, we sort of unearth a whole lot of assumptions that we make about every other aspect in life that for some reason we don't want to apply here.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point about alcohol and how we all personally feel about it versus what it does to society and making our own choices. And I think, yeah, some of it is probably that most of us I think we tend to have a sort of um, hazy golden glow around sports when we think about the idealistic version of them, uh, that they're good at their core and that these are the, you know, that this is the uh, sad consequence, the collateral damage of of things that happen within sport. And so we sort of start from there. I also think we're all just incredibly good at we've been taught very well by sports media to debate these things as if they are personal to us. Like, one of the things that we love about sport is that we can invest so much energy and um, emotion and, as you said at the beginning, drama into these things, and they have no, there's no stake for us personally, right? Like, you can have a real cathartic experience watching a sporting event, and for most people, unless maybe you're gambling or something, like, there's no actual outcome for you. Uh, And so we can have these kind of like over the top, huge debates around this thing. And for us, the stakes are very low. I do think concussions are interesting in that we funnel them so specifically. I mean, here in the States, it's almost exclusively the NFL, sometimes hockey. Uh, We rarely talk about it anywhere else. Whereas in the book we tried in the chapter on concussions to show that like almost every sport has some kind of concussion issue. Uh, figure skating, surfing. Cycling is a huge problem with concussions, um, just the everyday cycler. And we don't ever want to talk about it there because that's us. And that's scary when it becomes personal. Mm. And we have to start thinking about our personal decisions versus the three of us sitting here debating the decisions of a professional player on a team. That's so much easier to do because, again, the stakes for us personally are so low. Mm. But as soon as you start opening that conversation up to my child getting on a bike to go ride with the idea that he could get a concussion and who knows what that will mean down the line. That's when it becomes scary. And I don't really want to engage in that. It's like kind of putting your head in the sand, right?
2: But yeah, I think this is where fan responsibility really comes into its own. And I'm really glad about the way that you framed this, Jessica, because, you know, Walid was talking before about meaning making, on the part of the player, on the part of the elite athlete. But one of the things that sport does is, you're right, it catches you up in a drama. It makes you part of a community of fans. You can watch, for instance, just a couple days ago, my beloved Boston Celtics lose in the most humiliating fashion in the final quarter to the Chicago Bulls. And you feel, having lost absolutely nothing, you feel devastated. Or Mm -hmm. on the back of a win, you gain absolutely nothing, but you feel elated. So there is something about it that catches fans up in the slipstream, if you like. But I think the other reason, and Wally, this is where I think it really is different in so many ways from many of the other calculated risks we take. This is purely an external form of entertainment. We are not doing anything. We are not, you're right, Jessica, unless you're gambling. We are not losing anything. We're not gaining anything in the exchange. What we are losing, or sorry, what is being lost or what is being gained is being borne almost entirely by the players and by the teams themselves. In other words, we're enjoying something that exacts costs. And yet those costs are borne almost entirely not by the fans, but by the players. Now, I, 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 I find the issue of, of player autonomy, whether they are or are not able to fully, rationally make the decisions, um, I mean, I find it sort of an interesting topic, but for me, it's not finally determinative. If I know that watching two gladiators wearing heavily padded weighted gloves, slugging it out under spotlights in a ring, if I know that those two human lives are going to be devastated by that experience of repeated blows to the head, it, it, becomes, it becomes impossible without a form of extraordinary moral gymnastics. It becomes impossible to convince myself that this is a consequence-free little bit of entertainment. But do you see and the I assumption
1: think... you're making in it, though? I mean, you pick a sport like boxing, which I have no interest in, I don't like, and I would happily hmm. see vanish from the earth. But for a moment, let's assume that I love it. Who are you to say their lives will be devastated? as opposed to deeply enriched. Okay. Sure. What, um, what you mean is that they will suffer. Well, I
0: think it's probably both most of the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right? And that's what's complicated about it.
1: Exactly. And, and so my, my concern with the way the discussion proceeds is we, participants in this discussion, seem to arrogate to ourselves the right to make all these determinations on behalf of people. Now, I think to, you know, make this as macro as we possibly can and pick up some themes that we always seem to on the minefield, I think that kind of judgment, that kind of presumptuousness might make sense in a society that has a very clear meta narrative and a whole lot of consensus on um, what it is that life is about, right, on the meaning of life. Then I think you would have a basis for having, making those judgments and having that conversation. But in a society like ours that follows liberal canons of self-determination and of – in every respect, and that includes meaning-making – I just don't know how you can make those assertions without acting in a way that is contrary to the way that you would act or think about just about every other issue. This is where it gets tricky. Now, I take your point, Scott – I think it's a really important point – about all of the structural pressures that come to bear on someone. Well, not even pressures, just sort of prodding that, that comes to bear, the availability of money in one place and not in another. Um, the fact that, and this is what I think is really important for sporting uh, organisations, the fact that this is competitive so that you know people can be urged along by the fact that someone else is willing to make a sacrifice that they are not. Right? And so there's a a kind of structured peer pressure that, that occurs here that you know cajoles someone into potentially making a decision that is damaging to themselves. If you if you just opened up the floodgates so that people could make decisions to be as, be concussed every week, then eventually the person who becomes willing or who is willing to be concussed every week becomes more valuable than the person who is not, and then there's mm. all sorts of dynamics there that like I, I get all of that, but the bottom line it seems to me is you can't get through this conversation without saying that you are prepared to make a judgment about what is important in someone else's life and how their life is to be evaluated. You just can't. I mean, can you?
0: But fans are still implicated within the system. Like sports as entertainment doesn't exist without fans making very specific choices about what they want to watch. Like we can sit here all we want and debate this issue and fans of the NFL are still going to show up all the time and they're paying these billionaire owners, all this money to watch this sport. And so there isn't, they are implicated in the fact that these wheels keep on turning. And I hear what you're, I mean, part of what bothers me about the entire system at all, especially on the professional level. And we look at something, I just, again, I'm, you know, I know the NFL better. Uh, Those billionaire owners have set up a system where if you don't play through injury, if you, if you aren't willing to go back out there, you lose your job. Right. And this comes back to like these are laborers mm-hmm. making choices within a capitalistic and often racist system, especially in the NFL. And, and so those are bigger forces and the fans are, you know, they are the money uh, lubricant that's just moving that um, forward all the time. And so I do think fans should feel somewhat implicated in their choices within these systems at the same time. I don't know what you do with that because we're talking about an individual up against a system. And that is always like, I can sit here and I don't watch football anymore. That mm-hmm. hasn't stopped anything. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I feel better, maybe personally, morally, but like, what does it mean then for an individual to go up against a system? But I don't want to just like let fans off the hook completely because they are as much a part of this, even if they're not in the powerful individual positions, making choices.
1: Uh, if you've just joined us on the radio, this is The Minefield. Related Ali's my name, is Scott My co-host, That voice you just heard belongs to Jessica Luther, who's an investigative journalist and sports writer, focusing specifically on the intersection of sport and gendered violence. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield.
2: Um, look, if I were a legislator, and I was in charge of the portfolio of what? What are they usually now? Uh, sport. Uh, what is it? Sport, the arts, and culture. Isn't that usually the the way that these things kind of are brought together? Mm-hmm. Anyway, sure. If I could ban full contact sport, so sport where where collisions are part of the rules of the game, and these kind of Skull-jarring injuries are just part of the way that this thing is played. If I was in that position, I could ban it, I would. Um, I think there are ways of exploring and enjoying physical virtuosity and prowess without that kind of mounting, debilitating cost that's inflicted for many, many people later on in life. But but for me, I mean, you're absolutely right, Jessica. For, for me, that's not, I mean, I don't have that power. I don't know anybody who does have that power. I do think that maybe governments should be more involved in uh, the regulating safety in sport rather than simply turning things over to uh, in-court and out-of-court settlements. Um, but, but for me, it really does come down to the issue of fan complicity. Um, and... Not, I suppose, being in a position where we can simply wash our hands and say, well, they made that decision. For whatever reason, whatever calculations they made, whatever forms of meaning and enjoyment they now have, they made that decision. Therefore, the consequences are theirs and I can simply reap the fruits of my intermediary pleasure derived from the game. Um, for me, that, that just There's so many different layers of oblivion that have to overtake a person to be able to get to that position where you simply don't factor it in, you simply don't care, that it makes it really morally very, very, very murky for me. Um, And if there weren't other avenues in which kids, for instance, could look up and enjoy the prowess of their heroes, I mean, that's the other thing we're reckoning with here. I mean, these are extraordinary athletes who are having this winsome effect on children who want to be just like them, and so draw them into forms of, uh, of, of sport that may well be incredibly bad for them. I guess th- this is where this is where there are forms of decision-making that shouldn't just pertain to those who are closest to us, but really should be, I think, extraordinary forms of empathy and imagination, and that I would hope, I would hope, would so sully the experience that we simply can't give ourselves unthinkingly over to it. But you do
1: see sporting bodies Bending over backwards at the moment, trying to deal with this, right? You would, you would at the very least acknowledge that, would you not?
2: Like red, like red cards for unnecessary violent tackles or stand down. Uh, well, I mean, procedures, the, yeah, the right? NRL
1: ended up in a mini crisis this season when it yeah, tried but, to have a crackdown on these on the high tackles in a way that was completely is, alien to the way the game has been played for ages. Right? This is
2: a thin, this is a thin layer of paint on 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 a sport that lives on collision and And especially if you're right, and it's the repeated sustained, even minor collisions that do the most lasting ongoing damage, I think all of these all of these ameliorative or preventative measures i mean they they really are the barest minimum that would then allow people to get on with the belief that this is now somehow safer than it was before no, but
1: no, well, I think everybody knows that. There are dangers to be addressed, and they're trying to figure out how do you address them while preserving the sport. Now, I've already foreshadowed that I suspect there is no answer to that. Right? Mm. I, I but, agree. But where what I, I think agree. right? So, what I think is interesting, and Jessica, this kind of comes back to a point you made is when you understand how plenary this is likely to be, how comprehensive, how it touches every single one of us. I have a child just took up rollerblading within a day, got a concussion, right? <laughs> This is just a leisure activity, right? Yeah, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not going to stop because they find it fun and it's what they want to do, okay? So th- the broader this becomes, the more intractable or more impossible this is to solve. I know, Jessica, you want to say it's too scary for us, but I actually think if it has – I wonder if it has perversely the opposite effect where it becomes in, in a way less meaning, less meaningful. Because mm. if it's impossible to do anything that we want to do in our lives, <laughs> mm-hmm. then we just throw up our hands and say, well, that's, an, uh, that's a ridiculous goal to try to achieve.
0: You know, it's very interesting. So f- for the book, uh, I interviewed researcher scientist, Dr. Dawn Comstock, and she runs this database here in the U.S. of high school athletes uh, who suffer concussions and and. The effects on them. And, you know, a lot of the interview was pretty sad, like pretty depressing thinking about all these things around high school aged athletes and the issues and how here they're and probably around the world, schools don't really know how to deal with those effects. You know, if a student can't be in bright light for a few days, like mm-hmm. what happens to their schooling, all sorts of things that the outcome of it but it was very important to her and I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure this is how we end the chapter it was really important to her that we say that like she doesn't want to get rid of sports, even though she studies this and sees it all the time that going back to what Leed's talking about that there is real meaning for people within sport and that it is just part of our lives. And that for her, so much of it is like the education around how to handle when people get concussions. How do you give them the time and the space that they need in order for them to heal as as properly? Uh, So that they aren't as damaged moving forward because this is just part of our life. I mean, she was the one that told me that the most concussions and, you know, rollerblading, but bicycling, like that is where most people in the U.S. get concussions just out on their bikes and falling over and hitting their heads and that that's just a normal part of people's lives. So I... (laughs) this and talking to her, I was like, oh no, you've made it more complicated. Like you're a researcher who sees Mm. this all the time. And yet you, it was imperative to her that we get this across that she does not want to get rid of sport because it means so much to people. And it's good for you. You, Like we talk about the detriments to your health, right? But it's also incredible for your health and how, how does one balance those things?
1: And and the question, Scott, like it's interesting to think about the to go back to the elite athletes who might be coming from impoverished backgrounds or whatever, mm. what you would really have to compare, it's impossible really to do so, but the counterfactual is they they never take up this sport and they live a life that doesn't have the same kind of fitness and health regimens built in, um, they're low socioeconomic, so they're probably eating terrible food. Uh, who knows what the outcome So, So you're actually comparing two very different
2: lives at that point. Well, yeah, but – sorry, Willie, It gets really complicated at that point. I mean this is why there is a very, very strong and I think unovercomable argument uh, against ever paying for the donation of organs. Uh, The the moral argument against it is if someone found themselves in a position – where they had to do what a person in a relatively comfortable position would never consider doing because of financial destitution, then there's something immoral about creating the financial incentive to place themselves to place themselves in that position where they have to take upon themselves that kind of risk. But you understand me, that that
1: could never apply to sport, right? Because there are so many people. In quite well-to-do positions who would happily...
2: Of course I understand that. Of course I understand that. But I think the allure of a... Again, I don't want to go back to the issue of autonomy, but I think you can live a much, much better life, including that of your family, uh, if you take upon yourself the, the likelihood or the reasonable likelihood of quite profound risk. Uh, to your mental well-being later on. I think there's something there that's already suspect. Can I, just, can I just go back for a moment, though? None of us are talking about a life without risk. None of us, I think, are talking about a life without sport. But again, just to think about those other dynamics that are at play. Football players are getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster. There are commercial imperatives, including from broadcasters, that want the games to be faster and faster, and the players to hit harder and to be to stay on the field longer and to find themselves, you know, these extraordinary physical specimens. There are all of these dynamics that are currently involved that that are there in especially competitive sports that just aren't there for uh, amateur or school-based sport. And so again, we're we're talking about an environment where where it, it's not just risk it is a commercially intensified or a commercially heightened risk that makes the likelihood of damage almost the inevitability in many respects of damage all the more all the more pressing on our moral concern when you have those other factors that are involved, it's not just life without sport. It's the increasing likelihood of increasingly dangerous sport because the sport that we want to see is faster and harder and the athletes are bigger and stronger. That, I think, is also why it's just we, – we just can't wash our hands, I think, of a degree of complicity in what it is that we want when we watch sport.
0: And I'll just go back to the fact that a lot of those professional athletes have an incredibly precarious employment situation within the system yeah, as it's true. set up by owners. Like it's very easy to get rid of these guys a lot of the time if they will not make choices that can be harmful for them, even if we could argue that there is agency in those choices. Um, and so yeah, I, I, I think d- I agree with you.
1: I think that's an important <laughs> point. Yeah, but at the same time, One of the ways that that gets dealt with, and I don't know the NFL, for example, very well, it might be impossible there, but it's kind of happening in Australian sport now, is that the decision is taken out of the hands of the player and the club, right? So the AFL, for example, instituted a rule that if you had a concussion, if you failed a concussion test, you were simply not allowed to play within 12 days or whatever it is. And we will probably discover that it shouldn't be 12 days. It should be six months or something like that. That seems to be the only direction the science is going in. But nonetheless, they're doing that. What that does is it makes the clubs utterly powerless to force a player mm-hmm. to, to play. So there are ways in which that kind of thing is being negotiated. Um, and I think then, that's
0: interesting. I think the NFL, it's a lot of – I think they have concussion protocol. I just think a lot of the time it's left up to say the team's doctor, like other mm, people who are yes. also – under pressure to make specific choices in those moments.
1: Yes, which you need an independent medical assessment if you're going to make that sort of thing work. Yeah. Um, The other point about them being workers and precarious employment, I think that works up to a point, but I think where your contract is $10 million a year, you can live with that precariousness, can't you? (laughs) I mean, you know, you, you could walk away after six months and you probably earn more money than anyone who's watching you is going to earn. And so, for the rest
0: of their lives?
1: Well, possibly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then you think
0: about, I mean, and I'm working here from the states where we do not have any kind of socialized medicine. So, this is, you know, so much of the lawsuits from NFL and NHL players are revolving around that fact that they, Hmm. the amount of money that these men are putting into, their medical, their long-term medical care. And there's some, the NFL provides some. I'm not saying that they don't do it at, at all, but certainly for people who deteriorate quicker and at no, no, worse sure. levels. Yeah,
1: yeah. but I'm talking you know, about the person who decides they don't want to take that risk. Therefore, they avoid those medical um, outcomes. And as a result, we, they lose yeah, we, their job. There have been
0: players who do that. We've had, we've seen that in recent years, people who retire yeah. at the age of 24. And,
1: and, and I'm less worried about their economic situation than I am about most of the people in the crowd. As in, their career is precarious, but their financial situation is not that precarious.
0: I don't know the price of tickets now, at least here. I don't know if I'm worried about the crowd. Maybe it's people watching on TV. <laughs>
1: well, that might be right. Okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, as you may have detected, Jessica, I could keep going about this forever. Um, mercifully, I think, for the rest of the planet, I shall stop. Um, but... <laughs> Thank you so much for helping us out today. It's God's absolute right. It was great to have access to someone who's done the work that you have on it. So I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Jessica Luther is an independent writer and investigative journalist, postgraduate student at the University of Texas, uh, who is our guest or was our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. I think it's time for us to go away. We'll see you next week.